You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin here today by calling in the helping spirits to be with us. So I call out first to your ancestors and to mine. I call out to those who were here before us, those who lived well and died well, and bring all that is good and true and beautiful through the lines into our lives to support us. It is on their shoulders that we stand, and I ask them to be with us here today that we will learn from those who have gone before us, that we can hold true to those things that um, are of great value and great nurturing and sustaining energies for the people. And that we also at the same time have the courage and the creativity to innovate, to understand how to do what must be done in our own time, and to do it in a way that lays the good ground for those who are coming, that doesn't sacrifice the future for our needs here in the present. So I ask the ancestors to truly gather around us, to help us, to help us the living, to do what the living are charged to do and to help us to do it in a way that is good for all those who are coming, and that we do it in a way that is good for all life, and that we begin truly now to understand that our life is completely and utterly dependent on all life on the planet. And so I call out those, to those ancestors who can help us to live well, to live with great richness and authority in our life, but to do so in a way that we also understand our responsibility to those who are coming, those who have been, and to all life that is here with us right now. And I give thanks to those ancestors for their ever-present patience and, and presence with us in each day. And I ask all of those of you listening to turn your awareness in, to gather yourself from wherever you might be into your head and from your head to your heart. And in the next breath, from your heart to your belly and from your belly, reach down and touch the earth and take a moment with this great and ever so essential ancestor, our planet, the earth. And we give thanks to this energy for being with us here today and bringing to us the great diversity of life in this dream we share together. We give thanks to the earth for beauty, for the wonder of life, and for all of the challenges that life offers us that we might grow and become people of great character with wonderful stories to tell our grandchildren. We give thanks to the earth for the great compassion in her dreaming that allows us to change and transform. As long as we are still breathing, it is possible. And we give thanks to the earth for this particular dimension in this dream of life. 
And with great gratitude in our heart and in our energy, let us reach down through all the layers of the earth, letting our gratitude flow out, touching the earth as we reach down and down and down into the very center of the earth. And we ground our energy there and we take a moment in this essence energy of the earth to feel the stillness and the solitude and the restoration and replenishment and rejuvenation that comes out of these energies to touch deep into the core of the earth and draw this energy earth energy of the earth up into our life drawing with it the wisdom of manifestation how to be here in form in a good way let us draw on the energy of the earth to choose to ground to choose to be present to know what we take a stand for in life and to take it we draw on this energy of the earth that we know how to create home how to create hearth and that loving energy that connects and that we do so in a way that there is always a candle in our window, that our home is open to the other, open to the unknown, open to that energy that would come in and help us to truly transform into the men and the women that we have come here to be. May, us, may we understand home and family as the planet and humanity. And we give thanks to the energy of the earth for helping us to understand connection within ourself and connection to others. And may we go from connection to understanding interconnection and finally the great oneness of all things. And from that moment in the great oneness, may we take our sense of right relationship with ourself and from there reach out into right relationship with others, human and non-human. Right relationship with our environment, right relationship with the spirit world, with our ancestors and our descendants, and right relationship with our soul's true purpose. And we give thanks to the energy of the earth for all of the many, many teachings. And we draw the energy of the earth up from the belly to the heart. We draw it up from the heart to the mind. And we draw it all the way up, out the mind, out into the sky. And whatever weather it holds for you on this day, whether you are in the wintering times of the northern hemisphere or the coming into summer times in the south, we reach up through that weather, out through the atmosphere, and all the way out into the cosmos that has no seasons, out into the great mystery out into the unknown reaching all the way up and out to the highest power of the universe and by whatever name you know that energy name it see yourself reflected in it and it reflected in you knowing yourself as a piece of this great divine energy we reach out to it and draw it down into ourselves into our day into these proceedings we call down the energies from above bringing in the essential energy of blessing. May we be blessed and may we offer blessings in the way we live this day. We call down the energy of protection, of devotion and generosity and benevolence and all these energies that are the true nature of this existence. And we call this energy in, drawing in all the wisdom of the cosmos down into our head, into our heart, into our belly. And we send the sky energy all the way down to the center of the earth. And in this way, we know ourselves, humans, to be this place where heaven and earth come together. These two great lovers come together in that embrace of the big love. And may this loving energy so legendary in the Tao, may it awaken the true nature of our heart, 
that our heart can open and be the crucible that it is that can hold the fiery passions of our belly and the crystal clarity of our mind and draw these energies together in the heart and let them dance in this embrace that allows us to give birth to this third and most sacred thing, the sense, the feeling, the knowing of your own true purpose, your unique genius in this life. And may you find in that luscious human heart the courage you need in this day to take an action, large or small, to bring that gift into the world. And we give great thanks for all the spirit energies gathered round that help us in this. May what needs to be said be said here today. May what needs to be heard be heard. And may these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. So with great gratitude, I also want to thank those humans that are able to offer up money to help us to keep the show on the air. So for those who have been able to donate financially, I give thanks to Mari, to Patricia and Gracie and all of the listeners that are able to help financially so that, so that this show can stay listener supported and in that listener support stay on the air on the internet and that the archives are available all over for free for now five years of shows and I give thanks to you for helping me to keep this gift available to humanity to whoever can reach it through the internet so thank you and I give thanks to all of you that do things in other ways to help the show to grow to be strong to network the show to use what you're learning on the show share with me how that's going share your questions share your show ideas all the many things that you do to keep the show alive I am grateful for if you'd like to donate to the show you can go to whyshamanismnow.com click on the support button you can donate any amount large or small that is entirely up to you it all goes directly to keeping the show on the air and i am grateful for every ruble euro dollar and yen whatever comes in i am thankful for all of it we give thanks to the society of shamanic practitioners this is um ssp interview show here today and we give thanks for their ongoing support and you can find the ssp at shamansociety.org We are also live today, so if you would like to call in, you can reach us at 512-772-1938. You can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site, or you can simply email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org, and I'd be happy to read your questions on the air. So I would also like to give thanks here today to our guest, Sparrowheart. Sparrow, thank you for being with us here today. Uh, You're welcome. And thanks for that great uh, invocation and opening. So I'm very excited to have Sparrow with us here today because I've actually been trying to get him on the show for a while to speak to us about vision questing. And then this marvelous opportunity arose and that Sparrow has a new book out. And the book is called Letters to the River, A Guide to a Dream Worth Living. So... This was just too much excitement for me to stand, and so we've got him here today. And for those of you that don't know, Sparrow is the founder of Circles of Air, Circles of Stone, which offers vision quests, workshops, and trainings in the Southwest, in the American Southwest, in New England, and in Mexico. And he is the author of the book that we will talk about here today, Letters to the River. So Sparrow undertook his first wilderness rite of passage in 1971. So he has been at this for quite a while, and that was a five-month solo pilgrimage in the Cascades and Canadian Rockies. 
Um, and then after the completion of training in the School of Lost Borders with Stephen Foster and Meredith Little, who are the authors of the book of the Vision Quest, Sparrow began leading quests himself and now leads six to eight quests a year um, in various places. And um, if you would like information about the upcoming quests in 2004, 14. He's done for this year, but they'll begin again next spring. You can find that at questforvision.com. So Sparrow is a father, a writer, the creator of the Mythic Warrior Training, which is actually one of my personal favorites of the the path for men to take out there in men's work. Not that the men care what I think about it, but it is one of my favorites. <laughs> Not that they're asking me, but anyway, that is my point. Um, I care what you think. <laughs> well, thank you. So he's the founder of the annual Men's Wisdom Council at the Rowe Conference Center and a frequent workshop leader around the country. His work is firmly in the tradition of joining Earth and Sky bringing spiritual life out of the heavens and into the nitty-gritty issues we face daily, which is part of what I love about calling Sparrow in the midst of surprising him out of nowhere and saying, Sparrow, help me with this problem. Because I know he's not going to give me a bunch of um, high ideas, but he's going to listen to my problem and give me spiritual ideas that will help me in the dailiness of life. And he has been there for me many times. So I'm deeply grateful, and this is very true, that he is another teacher who really cares about how do we take these ancient teachings and live them today in a way that moves us as contemporary people um, into a place of spiritual maturity so we can do what we're here to do. Um, His work comes out of his own experience and his personal journeys includes a wide wide range of shamanic practices, apprenticeship with Native American teacher Sunbear, dream exploration, 12-step psychodrama, inner child work, and a long immersion in Toltec and Castaneda traditions. So we will be held well here today, people. So my first question is, it's kind of always my first question, but I think it's important. Um, And that is, Sparrow, can you share with us, as you reflect back on your life, the pivotal moment that moved you on the path that has got you to where you are today. Like you were just an everyday ordinary guy, and then you, you did something. Something happened, and now here you are, <laughs> leading great yeah. quests, writing <laughs> an know. amazing book. So what was that moment? Well, it's, um, it's really hard to say what. When you ask that question, what was the pivotal moment, immediately like 10 of them come, <laughs> come into my mind. Uh, but I'll give you just a very short short story one and then a, a little bit longer one. Um, certainly one of those moments came when I was in graduate school, and um, really I felt like I was just in some sense killing time there, and I, I picked up and read Thoreau, and... Um, And I read a passage in Thoreau where he talks about professors as people who profess things. And I immediately knew, he said, professors are people who profess, but they don't live. Mm, And I just mm. felt like, oh, he nailed me perfectly. And I knew my (laughs) my time in graduate school was not going to last long from the moment I read that. Your days um, were numbered. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it was something I, um, it was something that was, happening big in my life. Just a little background. I, I, I was in college in, at Stanford, which is just south of San Francisco in the Bay Area, from 1966 through 1970. And, you know, 
the 60s in San Francisco that was really happening there. And I was in this very kind of elite, uh, you know, wonderful college and doing well, but also participating in, in, uh, in everything that was happening. And that included Vietnam War protests. And, and basically, I could just see, basically, it was in front of me, okay, if I go through and I get a degree, which I did, and uh, even it was like Phi Beta Cap. If I get that degree, then what? Then what? I go put on a suit and uh, work for a bank or take part in some system that's destroying the earth. And and it was just like there was just this strong ache in me that said, I do not want an ordinary life. It felt mm-hmm. like the death of my soul. And so um, so it's very, it, it's maybe it's one thing to know what you don't want, you know, but knowing, knowing what you want to move away from may give you a certain kind of impetus or a certain kind of energy, but that's very different than knowing where you're going or what you want to move towards. And uh, it was actually, fortunately, during that time where um, uh, Carlos Castaneda published his first book, which, you know, was wildly popular, The Teachings of Don Juan, about his apprenticeship with this... Um, Yaki Indian shamanism, and when I read that, all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, here is a rich and vibrant life. Here is a life that's rich in the soul, that's exciting, it's about, you know, it's about expanding the the limits of what's possible in human capacities, it's about connecting with the earth, it's about living with integrity, and it just gave me enough of a vision that was, there was something other than just putting on the suit and earning the money and consuming things because it, it felt like soul death. And I think when, you know, when all of that happened and I read Castaneda's book, it gave me enough faith that somewhere out there, however long it took, that I could find something different than, than what the culture was offering as a whole and what the culture was defining as success. So I would say that was the moment that kind of pushed me out of the cultural nest and into this kind of unknown journey. So that was certainly one of those pivotal moments. Yeah. I love the idea of the cultural nest. It's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, so then the next one that you wanted to share. Oh, well, um, certainly the, uh, um, and I'll just say another, um, certainly there were many others. Certainly one was in, so I, I did. I eventually, you know, I left graduate school. I went on that uh, five-month solo hike through the Cascades and Canadian Rockies and came back to Vermont and basically through the 70s uh, lived like a lot of young people did. Uh, I was a hippie, lived on communes. Um, uh, basically, I had, in some sense, kind of dropped out of the, the, success, uh, the success rate and I was learning a lot of useful skills about, you know, growing organic food and, you know, learning how to cut wood and manage a woodlot. But, um, and I noticed that I was doing a lot of reading about um, indigenous cultures, books by Farley Moet, The People of the Deer, the, uh, Lawrence Vander, uh, Vanderpost, The Lost World of the Kalahari. And I could see this, this aching longing as I read about these people who lived close to the earth, who lived a life where, where every day they, they actually, even though they were materially poor, they were connecting to the great forces of the universe, and their life was 
just incredibly rich in a psychic sense, no matter how materially poor they were. And, and I was just reading and eating up those books. And, uh, and late in the 70s, I happened to read Black Elk Speaks, which, as you know, took, you know was about, uh, the story of Black Elk, who was a famous medicine person in, uh, in the late 1800s as the, as the last of the Plains Indians were kind of conquered. But when I read that book and it talked about his great vision and then his, his life of vision quest, it just struck me like a hammer. And I said, I have to do this. And so um, the next summer, which was 1980, I hitched out to the Black Hills of South Dakota and, you know, you know, without without a lot of wisdom or guidance or well or instruction, I uh, went out there and um, went up on top of Harney Peak and did my first vision quest. Yeah, with without a guide, without a mentor, and with a lot of enthusiasm and and not a lot of um, yeah, lot not a lot of mentoring. <laughs> and some great dumb luck, it sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's. It. Uh, yeah, and, oh, yeah, it was, um, you know, and I had an incredibly powerful altered state experience. And when I say with not a lot of wisdom, I, you know, nowadays, having done like 30 quests or more quests of my own, I can say, oh, yeah, yeah, you want an altered state, uh, exposure, and, exposure and exhaustion will do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, uh, but there's, there's, there's a saying in... Uh, there's a saying in the 12 steps that God watches over babies and drunks. And so <laughs> that's how I was, just totally enthusiastic. I'm going to march up the top of that mount- mountain. And I had, you know, I spent days up there fasting with no food, no water, no, no shelter, no sleeping bag. And, well, of course, I had an altered state. But, but that altered state was about a deep uh, surrender of boundaries. And all of a sudden, I became one with the mountain and... Uh, and uh, it was it's just incredibly profound and and you know at the end of that um, at the end of that experience i uh i um when I came down and was done with it, I knew that leading vision quest was going to be a a major part of my life because mm-hmm. it had just uh, struck me on so deeply and and on so many levels yeah um, so there's this kind of contemporary thing that happens these days, especially because I think people have such easy access to such powerful um, hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. And I get I get these kind of things all the time where, you know, whoa, I had this experience and it was, you know, kind of like a vision quest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then there's all these questions. So it's like, okay, if it was a vision quest – you probably wouldn't have these questions anymore. Why are you asking me? Get back up on the mountain. You know? <laughs> so, right. But the thing is, it's not really a journey. It's not really a vision quest. You're just doing a hallucinogen, and that's the nature of doing a hallucinogen. And so, so my next question is, so what do you think are kind of the functional components that turn an experience into a vision quest? All right. Yeah, there's certain, there's certain kind of traditional... I mean, there are some things that can be different in every tradition, but there are some things that are always there. Uh, first one is fasting. When, on a vision quest, you fast. You're not, you're not having food. Some of them are uh, fasting and drinking water, and some of them are, are without water, but fasting is always a part of it. 
solitude um, as part of it. No human companionship around, no books, no iPods, no anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so fasting, solitude, and nature, wilderness. You're out there alone. And, and people have often asked me, well, couldn't I do this in my living room? And my answer is no. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they say, why not? And, and, and to me, the real answer is, um, I don't know, you, you know, probably 20 years ago, Jerry Mander wrote this book called In the Absence of the Sacred, but he was talking about the effect of technology. But one of the things he said is, we as human beings, n- you know, 90% of more, we live inside worlds that we create. In other words, you know, mm-hmm. what we hear all day is, the radio, the iPod, the phone ringing, traffic. You know, what we see all day is computer screens, the insides of walls, you know, sidewalks. It's like we're living inside a world that humans have created. And he said, this is a form of incest. Mm. When, you, when you go outside of that and are in nature or you're in wilderness, all of a sudden you entered a world that created you and, and not vice versa. So. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the way I, I remember in one of my flyers I put is um, you're not going to meet your maker if you just stay inside worlds that you've made. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. So, so that kind of encounter with uh, wilderness, encounter with the, the powers of the earth, which, uh, which you know, obviously if, uh, over billions of years have, has found a way to mold itself in fashion all life, including us, you know, so it's there we have to go if we want to really, in my sense. Uh, so, so Vision Quest, is, a lot of it is about leaving the human world. You know, fasting changes one's consciousness, you know, it, uh, it, it actually, it's a ritual that does change consciousness. Uh, the idea of solitude, you know, all of a sudden we're outside of our routines, we're outside of the system of language and conversation that always reinforces the ego and it's always about the self. The self is in the center of the world and then you get in this much larger world that you're not the center of. And so to be able to open to that much larger world is, is, really, uh, is really essential. Yeah, yeah. Can't happen. It can't happen in the living room, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> no, I'm not sorry at all. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> So you've really kind of described this, I think, but I'd like to kind of talk about the particular kind of, um, for lack of a better word, the, the transformation, the, the, what is it that we're questing for? You know, so we, so we fast and we, we disconnect from humanity and, 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 and are surrendering into solitude and we're out there in nature in the wilderness and 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 what is it? So why, in other words, why would someone want a vision quest versus some other form of retreat or transformational process? What is unique about the quest? Um, yeah, I think there's actually uh, a few answers to that. In that, uh, people can people vision quest for, I mean, a lot of different individual and personal reasons. But I've kind of grouped them into categories. And so, um, so I'd, I'd say one reason that people might vision quest is because they're looking, looking for an experience that's um, 
an experience of a different way to live, a, di- a way out of the ordinary. Um, you know, you know, a lot of times people think about a vision quest as quote a Native American experience, and uh, I just want to say right now, it's not. It's it's almost like a universal experience that's almost like core to humanity's uh, spiritual journey. You know, um, Christ went out in the desert and fasted for 40 days. Moses went up top Mount Sinai and fasted and prayed. Buddha went into the forest and fasted under the Bodhi tree. So all of these are vision quests. And so in those, in those famous ones, the ones that have actually started world religions and and have been written about and spoken about very often, those type, those type of visionary experiences would happen. The encounter with death or the encounter with the devil or, the, or these kind of openings to God. So, so there are some people who go on vision quests because they're looking for that, some kind of either great or small transformative experience when they get when they somehow move into a form of being that is so out of the ordinary that um, it's it's just so compelling and and numinous that they they have the sense of oh my god in other words the world they're living in just expands exponentially through mm-hmm. some kind of encounter with with something vastly larger than themselves so some people are coming come because they want that kind of experience which is like what you you happened on the, your very first one is as you surrendered your boundaries and so that that was like your first quest. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. Um, okay. Another really co- common, a really kind of common reason people go on a, a vision quest is they they're asking that that question of you know what you know what's my life about what am I here for what's my purpose and certainly. A lot of people do vision quests because of that. You know, most, you know, um, most people in this culture and, you know, midlife is a great time when people address this and they realize, oh, my God, there's, um, there's, there's, much, <laughs> there's less time in front of the horse than in back of the cart. Um, and it's just like, and, 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 oh, I've spent the last 25 years just doing this or that that doesn't, you know, it may feed my wallet, but it doesn't feel much, feed my heart, my soul. Yeah. Uh, it, I'm using such a limited part of who I can be. And so, so many people go, um, you know, undertake a vision quest to find that sense of purpose and direction. And um, I would say the, the third, and there are actually a lot of people who um, undertake a vision quest for some kind of a rite of passage, you know. And in any kind of rite of passage, a rite of passage, you know, it's a passage from one thing to another. They want to put or leave behind some aspect of their life and move into another stage. So, so there, are, there are kind of like very traditional rites of passage from childhood to adulthood to, you know, adult to elder, you know, and so people might do this, you know, when they're young or they might do it when they retire, you know. Oh, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? How do, you know, I want to uh, put to rest and bury the part of me that was the worker, the teacher, the whatever for 40 years and open to a different part of my life. Uh, other people um, uh, do a rite of passage because they actually want to end certain psychological stances like um, 
I've lived the last uh, 25 years as a victim, and I don't want to live that anymore. And so, and and certainly in the in the whole kind of uh, preparation for the quest, you know, part of what I do in in specifics is I offer a I offer people a whole big toolkit of how to create their own rituals and ceremonies where where they can actually enact you know the burial of the the uh, person who plays victim and they can in some way you know plant the seeds of uh, living out of a different place so so rites of passage can be about you know also you know particular rights changes in one's life I, I was married now I'm a single person I want to you know <laughs> I want to I want to bury and put to rest that marriage and kind of open to who I am on my own or vice versa um, so or or you know or so it can be about because of things that are happening in one's life mm-hmm. the children mm-hmm. leaving home or it can be just realizing I've lived a certain point part of my life in a particular psychic space which is constricting mm-hmm. and limiting and I, I want to put that to rest and I've lived, lived most of my life trying to please my parents or whatever, yeah. whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah. yeah, I was doing a training once and uh, the, the, the leaders were talking about the reason that sort of shamanism was over and we'd moved on to this other phase was because ritual and ceremony weren't uh, valuable because they marked things in time and they th- this this particular teaching was more about being in the kind of constant flow of your transformational process and there was something about that at the time that really i i it just kind of went i went that doesn't ring true for me and mm-hmm. I, and i think in the taoistic sense of things to be in one or the other is actually kind of an excessive state and that we do need to close things so that something else can open for us. It's the nature of things. And so, so um, to be able to uh, create something like ritual or ceremony around the, the ending of something and the beginning of the other sounds to me to be an enormously powerful reason to go quest. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's just, certainly, as as we look at nature and we think of spring, summer, fall, winter, okay, spring is this time of initiating and planting mm-hmm. and new things, and summer is this time of rapid growth, and then fall, it all starts, you know, the fruit mm-hmm. drop off and it starts to die back, and in winter it's like essentially dead, and then it, there are cycles, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and they need to be marked and completed, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah you know. Well, and humans are terrible. I was just talking last week. Humans are terrible about keeping their foot in that door just in case they might want to go back. You know, you've got to go forward and let that door close. Right. So, but that does bring me to one question is um, the simple version of the question is life isn't fair. The spirit world is not necessarily fair. I think humans need to do things that are fair and just for us, for our hearts. But the bottom line is life isn't fair. So you can actually throw yourself out there on the mountain and fast and do everything exactly as you're supposed to do and still not really seem to have this experience that you're looking for. So how do you, how do you help people with that sort of like it didn't happen issue? Oh, what didn't happen? Like whatever they thought was going to happen. Oh, on uh, your quest. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. Well, I, w- I, um, I would, for most people, start with by saying, you know, right at the beginning, before they quest, whatever you think is going to happen, 
it's not going to be that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, um, you know, uh, again, it's uh, whatever we think is going to happen is, you know, a fantasy that comes out of our thinking, rational mind. So, um, and I, I always, um, you know, uh, a cup, a, you know, a conceptual system I often use is I say there's the known and the unknown, and so, in some sense, a vision quest is the known meeting the unknown. So, if you come back complaining it didn't go like I thought it would, it's like, oh, so you met the unknown, okay? <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> um, um, I think you know, Steve Bear or, talks about the pink buffalo or something like that. Oh <laughs> I yeah, the pink buffalo. I, I, I call yeah, I call it the neon buffalo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I I think you'll like it because I know you have this totally irre- irreverent side right alongside our reverent side. Is um, I call it the neon buffalo. Yeah, I want to go out on the vision quest and I want all this kind of these psychedelic events where the luminous eagle comes down and lands and tells me I'm a light worker for the last 10,000 lifetimes and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I call that wanting the neon buffalo experience. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and But the joke I make is, you know, probably behind every neon buffalo is a trail of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, we, but that's just, you know, in some sense, that's a fantasy of the ego, Mm-hmm. I want a great experience so I can come back and tell everybody how special I am. Yeah, how big that fish is I caught. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, how big that... And, and um, you know, almost by definition, the vision quest or any kind of heroic journey is about moving the ego out of the center so that something larger can come in. I mean, virtually... Virtually every spiritual tradition is about moving the ego out of the center, whether it's by by certain rituals that that do that, or whether by meditation where you actually do these um, things where the actually the, the the constant chatter dies down so that something larger can enter. So the idea that um, that oh I didn't get what I expected is, I mean, and that's the only thing you should expect. Um, right. <laughs> um, virtually every, I mean, I have never, and at this point I've, I've led Vision Quest for 28 years, and um, people tell me I've actually led more Vision Quest than anybody else in the country, But and I have never, ever had anybody come back from a Vision Quest and say nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Many people come back and said, "Oh my God, I never expected that." Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, yeah. but for any any person, um, you know, when I say, you know, in some way we encounter, um, we go out and we encounter the unknown. So for one person, encountering the unknown might be really encountering and having an experience of that multi-dimensional nature of the universe and it may be very very kind of exciting and yeah psychedelic in a way but for another person encountering the unknown is just all of a sudden getting to face the uh the tidal wave of grief they've hidden from for the last 15 years mm-hmm. so and so so basically it's it's about 
you know, being willing to get on the ship and, uh, you know, set sail into that unknown, knowing that you're, you'll meet, uh, you, you're as likely to meet monsters as you are to meet uh, angels and helping spirits. They're both there. Mm-hmm. And monsters just means, you know, your fears. <laughs> angels in disguise. Yeah, and, and one, of, <laughs> one of the fears is that nothing will happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, okay, so so here you are wandering about the earth, doing leading people on vision quests, and out of this experience over the years comes the experiences your book is really out of. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Uh, yeah, I, I think I would I would say the the book is certainly um, resonant or in harmony with. Um, the experience of leading vision quests, and um, I mean, they certainly—it certainly fits well together, you know. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, some of some of what's in the book has come out of my experience leading vision quests, and and certainly some's come out of my own my own journey, which leading quests is a, certainly a big part of. Yeah, but it's yeah. not all of. Yeah. So, so what? In terms of you. What what was the inner inspiration to to start the book, write the book, and get it out in the world? What what is it that it it was doing for you, or what did you hope that it would do once it was out in the world? Oh, um, um, yeah, I I'm, I sense two questions there, and I'm not sure which yeah. one you're asking. One is <laughs> what right. was my what was the inner drive, and then mm-hmm. what do I hope it does out in the world? And those exactly. Those are different, but yeah. Um, I think the inner drive um, came out of my own. Um, it was almost like a a promise. Um, the inner drive is something like this. Um, it was a, a statement or a promise to Mother Earth. It says, um, um, "How can I give back something for all you've given me?" Mm-hmm. That's the inner drive, feeling like. Um, I have this incredibly rich life. Um, you know, I go into wilderness. I, I, uh, I have a job where I actually help shepherd and midwife people to, to really encounter the earth in an incredibly deep and intimate way. And certainly my own journey, uh, I feel like, um, you know, the earth, you know, the earth has been, you know, the, the loving, wonderful mother that I never had in my own childhood, you know, one who lets me, uh, you know, do what I need to do, make my own mistakes, teaches me, who feeds me every day, whether it's through sunlight and water and wind. It's this this being who in over, you know, hundreds of million years has fashioned the brain I have, the neural system, the eyes I see through, you know, all of that's been created by the earth. And and so I feel like I've inherited or been blessed with all of this. And so, and and it, in this time, we, as you know, we're living in a culture that um, seems rampant on, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, driving the earth into submission. So it's almost like, to me, there was this promise. This I need to make. What can I do to give back for all of this? And um, and so, in some sense, it it was a promise to, you know, be a human who speaks for her or actually maybe allows her to speak through me so Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. was kind of you know the inner drive is 
you know, uh, I have to, you know, keep this promise. Um, and, uh, you know, on, <laughs> and, you know, on a much more practical level, you know, in the, in the 90s, I was, you know, writing a lot of articles for magazines and, and it was just like, it was just so frustrating because, you know, in a magazine article, you have 1,200 words and you can basically uh, essentially talk about one idea. And mm-hmm. I, I was frustrated by, by this thing, but all these things are interconnected. Yeah. I, I talk about one idea. <laughs> it was yeah. just like, I, I, you know, you know. I, so in this book, I was able to, whoa, to actually write something about the connection of all of these things about yeah. about uh, about how we got you know how we got where we are the the mythology we're living through how language impacts the way we think how you know how do we you know how do we kind of get out of our heads and get a get out of this place of disconnection from our body and you know as you know this the book is in two parts you know and the the first hundred and fifty pages are really from the left brain, it's you know a very kind of examination of not only how we got where we got, but where we need to go and how mm-hmm. we need to get there, and some of the issues we need to face. And then the second half is in kind of mirroring chapters, you know, written from the other side, written from being in that different place, written from living in a different mythology, and so. So the, it's kind of like the first half of the book is um, tell me, and the second half of the book is show me. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. And so, so, um, so yeah, I wanted to be able not only uh, to tell a story, a story about where we are and how we got there, but but also tell a story of where we could be, and then show what that might look like, because. Mm-hmm. I think the problem of today is everybody realizes we're in trouble, mm-hmm. <laughs> and whether you're, you know, whether you're working in the environmental field or the political field or for justice or anything, it's everybody realizes we're in trouble. But um, it seems like each, you know, um, and many people are so passionate and doing really good work, but it's like everybody has one piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this book really says, and this is how all those pieces are connected, because this is the dream we're living. And if we live that dream, this is the reality we get. And and so, and then it kind of shows about what living in a different dream is like. So. And so is this, is this in some ways the answer to the second question, which is this is what you would hope the book could offer to readers is is this other possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, here's a, I mean, here's, here, here's one, one way to, to put that, but it's, it's just a simple analogy, is that, um, you know, uh, Carl Jung once said, humans have four ways of knowing and interacting with the world. He said we can, we can, we can do it through our senses, through our, our sensory life. We can do it through feeling, through our emotional life. We can know the world through thinking, and we can know the world through imagination. And we all come, through, you know, through whatever, 12, 16 years of education where we're taught, you know, for 180 days a year to think, 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 and think. Mm-hmm. So, so, <laughs> and, 
so there are all these other parts of ourselves who uh, who basically get um, undeveloped, you know, uh, you know, you know, and you know, we, I mean, we're disconnected from our bodies, and certainly from the body of the earth, disconnected from our emotions, and disconnected from our imaginations, and we've even learned a worldview in which imagination is almost a synonym for unreal. Yes. And, and, and certainly you, who works in the world of, you know, works in the field of shamanism, you probably often get, oh, well, okay, suppose that happened, but is that real? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what I want to say is everything is imagination. Yes. If, you know, the, what makes the United States real is imagination. There's no line in the sand between here and Canada, which is, is <laughs> we, we create this imagination, of, but because everyone agrees, then the United States exists. Mm-hmm. You, know, but, you know, what gets defined as a family is different here than, than in, you know, maybe the South Seas. But mm-hmm. the family is, and so imagination is actually this force, this capacity to take seemingly separate things and combine them into an image. And it's like this power. And they're combined into an image, and it becomes real. So we have an image of what, what a family is, or what the United States is. Or, and, and then we live in that reality, and we think it's real. And, um, and it is for us. But, um, but, but um, you know, in one of the uh, examples I give in the book, I ask the question, does the Big Dipper really exist? And, you know, and, you know, and what do you mean? Well, you know, you look up in the sky and there are those seven stars and you can connect the dots and it looks like a pot and that's the Big Dipper. Now, before I was eight years old, that didn't exist. And when I was eight, my father took me out in the backyard and pointed them out. And, you know, so for the last, uh, you know, 50 or so years, the Big Dipper exists for me. But... And and I like it. I like to see it there. It's useful. You can find the North Star through, you know, the uh, pointing through the stars of the Big Dipper. But what, what I meant by that question is there are no lines connecting those little dots in the sky. Right, right. We make that image. And once we make it, it exists. But, but, but the real point I, I, I wanted to make with that question is, you know, on a, on a dark, moonless night that's clear, there are about 2,000 stars in the sky. And to, in order for the Big Dipper to exist, you have to put those seven stars in relationship to each other and deny their relationships to the other 2,000 stars. And if you do that, you deny all those other possible relationships, then you have this image, the Big Dipper, and it exists. But the point is, that's what we do in all, all throughout life, we, we say these relationships exist, and whenever we do, we deny all the other possible relationships. So, so just like we do with the Big Dipper, we do that in our, our social life, our emotional life. We, we, we learn to see the world as made up of separate objects. And, and so every time we create a form, and a, every way of seeing the world has a certain power. But in order, but whenever we step into and use that, we we ignore all the other lenses and ways of seeing the world, 
And um, as you know, in you know, certainly in in shamanism, it's just like, ooh, all of a sudden we're actually, you know, combining, forming, you know, different images. You know, these different different constellations of energy are appearing together than the ones kind of accepted in, you know, the the school and textbooks of this culture. And so. And in so, in many ways, you're you're. It sounds to me like you're talking about a big theme that I've been talking about on the show this year, which is about the storyteller. You know, who's telling the story? Because it's all stories, as you said, it's all imagination. Yeah. And so we can craft stories that um, lead us into dysfunction and and damage or we can tell stories that but the point is we're always telling a story so you might want to choose your stories wisely um and 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 one of the things one of the many many things that i like about your book is this this exploring language exploring um imagination but also the challenge inherent in that in okay so what about living in a larger story? So could you talk a little bit about what living in a larger story means to you and also what you feel, the second part of it, what do you think are the main challenges or reasons people aren't already choosing that? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's, it's, it's a really big question and an important mm-hmm. one. Um, so here, and I realize, oh, I could answer this in a whole bunch of different ways. But um, um, so here, here's one way I could answer it: is is to say that, um, yeah, you're right. Every we're, we li- we we live inside our stories and our myths. You know, uh, one metaphor I use is that we see the world through a lens. So. And at one point, I used the, the example of a camera. And you get a camera, and you put on a telephoto lens, and all of a sudden, that mountain way out there on the horizon comes into clear focus, and it's like really crystal clear, and we can see the mountain really well. But we can't see anything at our feet because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's all blurry and out of focus. And then, then we want to take a picture of what's at our feet, and we put on a different lens, and Everything at our feet comes into focus, but then the mountain is gone. So it's like we can't, you know, we can't, we're just incapable of looking at the world without a lens. And so, uh, you know, and certainly our mythology and our language system are lenses through which certain things come into really clear focus, but other things disappear and we can't even see them. And so, um, so yeah, and 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 then the book talks about some of those lenses, you know, the ones we've, you know, learned in tr- traditional Newtonian physics that the world's made up of separate objects, and I mean that's an incredibly powerful lens. Over the last 400 years, it's totally changed the landscape and created airplanes and all sorts of things and put you know humans on the moon, and. It's also one of the lenses that is heading straight into environmental destruction because because it sees the world as made of separate objects. That means all those, the web of interconnections are invisible in that lens. And so, so, it's, so essentially, I, yeah, I do say we can't live without stories 
the idea that we can live without myths is a myth itself. But <laughs> that happens to be the one we, we believe, that we, we believe we're not living a mythology. We believe we're living in quote-unquote reality. But that's just our mythology. And so basically I'm saying, you know, the book is both describing and showing that there are other lenses and other modes of awareness in which these, uh, these interrelationships, these, these deep connections to our bodies, to our souls, our spirits, are possible. And, and, here's some of the, and here are some of the, both the, the parameters and the specifics of those lenses, what they look like. And, and, here's, and here's a bunch, you know, here's some writings which are written from a different lens, so you can get a feel of what that's like. So, in one sense, yeah, can we live in a world where, um, where we realize that, you know, it's almost like the way we approach the world determines the reality that comes back to us. It's like, in one sense, it's, it's like, um, you know, the, like the subtitle of the book, the, the, A Guide to a Dream Worth Living, is like, you know, when we, at night, when we dream, we enter a world in which things aren't so separate. Everything is in relationship and affecting and changing, you know, each other. You know, whatever, I'm interacting with something, someone in the dream world, and as it changes, I change. And, you know, there's this dance where everything is, is changing and changing each other. And I think, actually, that's much closer to the way the world works than the the um, the kind of science and the kind of um, you know uh, social rules that we've we've inherited, and to some people that's frightening because it yeah. says, "Oh my God, that means I can't depend on anything." But on the other hand, it's incredibly li- liberating because it says the kind of energy you approach the world with will determine the kind of world that will come back to you. Precisely. Yeah. So, and it's so like, Sparrow, yeah. would you like to share a little piece from the book with everyone? Uh, sure, yeah. I've, you know, I've got, uh, there are probably, you know, in the second half of the book, you, as you know, probably uh, 70 or so. Um, Favorite parts? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are 70 of these letters, and but, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, and. But I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll read one of them, and and uh, this one's called "Songs in Stone," and it, it was written one October morning uh, at this uh, beautiful lake over in New Hampshire, and it had a um, a little um, skim of ice on it. So I'll read that. Dear River, this morning is frosty, ice forming around the edges of this sorrel-stained lake tinted with tannin from decaying leaves of oak. An October sun dances among high clouds, promising but fickle, and it teases my layered and longing flesh. Lily pads float on the surface of the water, while underneath great slabs of granite slumber on the bottom, their massive outlines softened by mud. Unmoved for millennia, these megaliths form grand footings, a foundation for invisible columns of yore that seem to support the sky. Massive boulders are strewn all throughout this New England forest. 
scattered, scattered scraps of stone left by ages of ice that scoured this land. Appearing as islands and congregating in cliffs, they stand like sentinels, solid, stable, and silent. A repository of geologic memory holding seasons, centuries, and species come and gone. I am the latest, and I sense those tracks of dinosaur, drought, and endless winters from my temporary place on the shore. The pulse and the presence of eternity is here, now, outside and within me, prowling around the edges of my awareness, tapping on the door between one possibility and another. The water looks cold, uncomfortable from a customary standpoint, but something hovers in the shadowlands of my perceptions and entices me to answer. To, to enter. There are 10,000 depictions or dreams of what we call life. The possibilities are endless. In one reality, we swim in a sea of daily affairs, rapidly moving from here to there like tadpoles in a puddle. Avoiding matters of the soul as if they were predators, we amassed knowledge and power like piles of poker chips, trading them for trinkets to display in the cabinets of a circumscribed life. Shallowness and superficiality are served up with saccharine smiles. Conversations and cliches come with crumpets and coffee, a banquet of empty calories that can damage the heart. In that dream, perhaps we are already dead. But there are scores of senses uncharted by the ordinary self, worlds of wonder inaccessible to this everyday coat of flesh. Quanta leap and fluid fields of energy dance. Universes assemble, rise, and fall. Parallel realities converge. Time and space intertwine and merge, spawning new dimensions. Something expands. A doorway opens. The sentient landscape smiles. My simple friendship mirrored in its infinitely expressive face. It has so many secrets to tell me about God, about love, death, and beauty, about stones who sing through silence, about life, which is but a dream. But what a dream it is, and I won't go back to sleep. Thank you, Sparrow. Yeah. So thank you for joining us here today. Yeah. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you for this great conversation. Yeah, and thanks for your book. It's a, it's a wonderful time for it to be out in the world to, to help us as the people living to write a new story for the new world. And um, I'm just very grateful to you. Thank you very yeah. much. Well, thank you. It's, I feel like we could probably talk for hours, but I, I also <laughs> want to just really bless your work and um, the work you're doing and, and uh, bring, bringing people who are trying to live a new dream onto your show and getting it out to the world. I, you know, I, I really appreciate you as a, a sister and a companion on the, on the path of heart. Thank you. Thank you. So everybody, if you want to connect with Sparrow and buy the book and buy the book for your family for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, um, you can go to questforvision.com. 
The book is Letters to the River by Sparrow Hart, H-A-R-T. And if you want to connect with Sparrow, if you have questions or you, you want to connect with him, it's Sparrow at together.net. So thank you again, Sparrow, for joining us here today. Thanks to your ancestors for dreaming of you that you could be here. <laughs> and I give thanks to the earth below, the sky above, and the heart that unites all of us. Thank you, everyone, and have a great week.